0: Assalamu wa rahmatullah, this is Abdurrahman and you're listening to the HeartWork series on the Qalam podcast. HeartWork is a weekly session at the Roots Community Space in Dallas, Texas, where young professionals come together and discuss ideas and concepts on how to grow in their religious practice and their relationship with Allah. This particular series is called The Messenger, where the focus of the discussions will be on lessons from the life of the Prophet Muhammad If you enjoy and appreciate these sessions and these series, then please consider becoming a sustainer of the Roots community space by going to rootsdfw.org slash sustain. We really appreciate your contribution, we appreciate your prayers, and we appreciate you listening to the programming that we put out. Jazakumullah khairan, assalamu alaykum wa rahmatullah. Alrighty. bismillah wa alhamdulillah wa salatu wassalamu ala rasulullah wa ala alihi wa sahbihi Um Insha'Allah now we'll be continuing our weekly study of the life of the Prophet ﷺ in the context of um, young professional life. So the idea is, you know, and for those of you who have been a part of Roots and a part of HeartWork, you know that Monday nights, HeartWork is our young professional session. It's our series where young professionals get together um, and learn and discuss and take lessons from the Islamic uh, encyclopedia, whether it's Tafsir of the Quran, whether it's the Sirah of the Life of the Prophet, sallam, whether it's the reading of a, a spiritual text, and trying to apply those lessons, particularly in a young professional framework. Um, so the ages that we find many uh, young Muslims sort of searching for guidance, uh, you know, mid 20s, 30s, into the 40s, um, and so we're reading the seerah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. Last week, we were able to get to a point and cover and talk about how the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, his migration to Medina. Um, it had, obviously, it's it's it was a, a milestone in the goal of, of searching for and having a city and a sanctuary for uh, the Prophet Wasallam to begin building a community, but the reality is that it still presented its own challenges, its own political challenges, its own social challenges, um, from whether it was the sickness of Yathrib that all of the companions uh, felt and they struggled with early on uh, after moving there, or whether it was the... Um, you know, kind of, sort of, um, I don't want to say harassment, but the the trouble that was caused uh, to the Prophet ﷺ by some of the leadership from the uh, tribes that were already existing there, whether those tribes were Jewish tribes or Christian or, or pagan tribes. And so the Prophet ﷺ had a lot of work to do in order to cultivate this land to be a place that was to be accepted by uh, you know, or that he was to be accepted by its people, not just Medina and not just the majority of the tribe, but also to be to build alliances and to build protection. The first thing that the Prophet ﷺ did, and we'll you know um, will continue now, inshallah, one of the first things that the Prophet ﷺ did was that he he started to establish uh, what is called saray- Saraya. They have called Saraya, which is roughly translated as expeditions. And what the Prophet ﷺ did was he started to send out different groups of representatives from the Muslim community, uh, from the the, the Muslims who were there in Medina with him, and he basically had, along with himself, had started to sort of go out on these little mini expeditions to all these areas that surrounded Medina. Whether it was west to the coast, or whether it was east further in, uh, you had a a lot of different... um, sort of expeditions that were being made. And one of the reasons why the Prophet did this was he was trying to start to build a rapport and a relationship with some of the Bedouin tribes that were around um, the Prophet city in Medina. So a lot of these Bedouins, they religiously were pagan. And so they because of that, they identified with other pagans in Arabia, no, most notably the Quraysh on top of that, on top of being pagan and identifying with Quraysh because of that, the Quraysh had established a reputation for themselves. Because the Quraysh had, uh, you know, Mecca in their care, because the Quraysh had Mecca in their uh, their, uh, responsibility, the Quraysh had a reputation for themselves. What was that reputation? The the, The reputation was that they were known to be like the most elite and noble and honorable. Why? Because again, their association with The house of Allah. And even till today, I mean, you'll see um, a lot of people across even the Muslim world will hold, um, you know, the the country of Saudi Arabia at the same level, or they'll conflate oftentimes the sanctity and the holiness of the Kaaba and of Medina and of Masjid Nabawi. They will conflate that sanctity and sacredness, and they will. Because it's so emotional to them, it's so powerful in their life, they'll kind of spread that over the uh, you know the rest of Saudi Arabia, and so you have here um, this sort of culture that was because of association the Quraysh were accepted and were uh, you know reputable. So the Prophet sallam, had to invest some time and some resources and some effort into sort of deconstructing those uh, that reputation, that relationship, and also. Into building his own introduction with uh, with, with the people uh, around Medina, and so the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. The first thing he did was he started to establish these little expeditions where he would try to introduce and get to know, and really try to build a relationship with um, some of these people. Now, this is an interesting tactic. Obviously, the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam has now a place to call home. He has a sanctuary. He has you know, his, the, the masjid is built or, you know, the, the first phase of the masjid is built, the small masjid is built, the city is there, the, you know, majority Muslim community, it's, you know, relatively compared to Mecca, very peaceful. And and this is still the Prophet Wasallam understanding that more work has to be done, especially with those people surrounding. And this is something that, especially when you live like in bigger cities, um, you really value reading something like this from the Sirah. Why? Because, uh, you know, I lived in, in, in Chicago where I grew up and then I've lived obviously now here. I'm in Dallas. Very large cities and very large Muslim communities. Um, and then I've also lived in uh, Knoxville, Tennessee. You know, I've lived in Knoxville, Tennessee, which is a smaller uh, city and also a smaller Muslim community because, you know, obviously the population scale down. Uh, I also spent some time in Memphis, which is like a mid-sized city. And, uh, you know, my wife is from there, so I would go there frequently, uh, mid-sized city, so there's a mid-sized population, uh, mid-sized Muslim community. And what I noticed is that the larger the population, the larger the Muslim community, the more insular the Muslims became, and the more internal the Muslims became, and the less interested the Muslim community became in trying to build meaningful not political, and not, you know, uh, not, uh, what's what's the word? Uh, not like, you know, symbolic relationship, like meaningful relationships. And when I compare that to the time that I spent in Knoxville, Tennessee, with some of the community members there and the people that I knew there for four years, there was a lot more meaning behind the idea of trying to build those relationships. So what would you see? What would I see? I would see That typically in bigger cities, you find to see that you you know you you will end up seeing that people will find themselves around certain kinds of people, and they'll find themselves around Muslims. And there, you know, there's grocery stores and restaurants, and there's everything that's within the cultural bubble that we're used to, and and, and so they'll go shopping at a at a a grocery store. They'll eat at the restaurants where there's only Muslims. Um, They'll live in a suburb, you know, even in Dallas here there are suburbs, there are like like subdivisions that are only Muslim subdivisions, right? Like, and not by, uh, obviously there's no law that, you know, oh, you have to be Muslim to move in. But people, you know, all the Muslims came in and they bought. And uh, subhanAllah, it, it's really interesting because obviously I can see the benefit in living in a community where there's a lot of Muslims and there's a lot of people, you know, uh, of the same faith. But what does that do if you're not actively trying to mitigate or trying to uh, you know, build upon that community by extending your reach out to the other communities that maybe don't share the same faith as you. And, and, and this was something that I think I noticed a very stark difference in um, you know, versus when I lived in, in Tennessee, in Knoxville, Tennessee, it was, it was, it was like a farut. it was like something that was, that was wajib upon you, that you had to build relationships with your neighbors and they were most likely not going to be Muslim or from the same faith, and so the reality was, you ended up having to do this, and it was only beneficial in the long run, because what, what ends up happening, subhanAllah, in these situations, is that you end up having, um, you know, whether it's like a, a political situation or a crisis, like the pandemic that we're in, or even just the political races that we'll see, or there's some legislation coming up locally, and uh, you know, Muslims are going to be really targeted and impacted along with other minority groups, and there needs to be like widespread support, but because we were so insular and because we were so only in our bubbles, right, no one has an interest in, 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 in being empathetic and in offering that empathy towards us and supporting because the first time they get to know us is the time that we're asking for their help, right? Um, versus in, in, you know, in other cities that I've been to, whether I've lived there or that I've traveled there, because the Muslims actually spent real time investing in those relationships before any crisis happened, when the, crisis, when the crises did start to occur, the political issues or the legislation or the city ordinances or whatever, you would have people outside of the Muslim community that were standing up for the Muslim community, right? Even more passionately than some of the Muslims within that community, right? So this tactic that the Prophet ﷺ is doing, it's actually incredibly... I mean, obviously, ﷺ... He, he was the most intelligent person to ever have lived uh, in so many different paradigms and so many different realms, and one of them was community building. You know his ability to foresee the need to build these alliances so that there was a meaningful relationship. It wasn't only for the sake of dawah. It wasn't only like, oh, I'm the prophet, convert. If they didn't accept him, he didn't just say, okay, now we're at war. They they were allowed to exist, right? They were allowed to live. They were they were better with, it. but he had now a relationship there was a face to the name so then if any other community had had you know uh, and we'll see how this comes up later if any other community had any negative intentions towards the muslims you know if a neighbor of the muslims found out who do you think what do you think they're going to do they're going to reach out to their neighbor the muslim community and say hey you know i don't know about y'all but i've been hearing some stuff right and that's actually what happens later on uh, when the Muslims are starting to be threatened in the, uh, you know, leading up to the Battle of Badr, is that they're, uh, you know, leading up to it, there are some, some whispers around Arabia, and they eventually get back to Miran and to the Prophet uh Without a doubt, in part, of, in part because the Prophet Wasallam invested in these relationships early on. So one of the things that we can do as Muslims, ultimately taking from this lesson, I know it's very quick, like we're right into this, today's lesson, but we're already jumping into Reflections is we have to be able to think to ourselves, like, how can I build a meaningful relationship with the people around me? Not, again, not symbolic, not a PR stunt. It's not all about the giant 20-foot check, you know? And, and that kind of stuff, subhanAllah, I understand sometimes the benefit in it, but, like, I really sometimes feel like we sabotage our own meaningful relationships with people by trying to always publicize it, you know? It's not always about posting a picture on you, of you with your Christian friend on Instagram, right, or you with your Jewish friend, like, oh, Muslim and a Jew getting along, it's like, maybe just let that exist, you know, maybe you don't have to publicize it, like, maybe it can just be something, uh, or, or handing, or, or putting together, you know, Muslims putting together, uh, this fund for, uh, a cause, you know, uh, whether it's related to coronavirus or any situation, obviously, I understand the power in seeing positive messaging of Muslims in a public platform, I get that, I understand it, and, and no one gets happier, then the Muslims, when we're able to open up our phones or see on the TV that, you know, I, there was a, a young, I think, eight-year-old boy, uh, I forget his name, I think it was Nazim, or, or I forget his name, but he was, like, collecting masks, right, PPE, the, the pr- protective equipment for the physicians, he was, like, going to, like, I think, hotels and hospitals and things like that, collecting masks and, and giving them to hospitals, amazing story, right, and, like, when you see that, it's amazing, what a powerful image, to see a young Muslim boy doing such good work, it's a great association, but that's okay, but we also need to make sure that there are those moments of sincere, meaningful relationship building, right? And I'll share with you, I'll share with you my own process, my own, you know, it's not easy, but it's, it's, it's absolutely necessary and it's worth it. Um, I'm part of this app called Nextdoor, I don't know if you guys have heard of it, Nextdoor. It's basically like a super local Facebook, right? And it's actually very beneficial. You know, some of it's kind of funny, like there's people who get into arguments and stuff on there about, you know, like their lawn or something like that, or this is a really interesting stuff. You know, people, they just talk. But there are some really valuable, you know, aspects to that. There's some very valuable aspects to having a community app where you can communicate with people around you uh, safely, relatively anonymously. Um, and so I'm on this app, and obviously now with the limitation of supplies, uh, you know, it being available in stores and things like that. Subhanallah, uh, may Allah Ta'ala help us and protect us. There are people actually who are like asking for for help. You know, they're on this app and they're saying if anyone has any extra, you know, rice or bread. And 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 I saw something the other day, man. It like it like it like shook me, dude. Like, Subhanallah, there was a mom, and she's like, I'm a single mother, and or no no, she's not a single mother, I'm probably But she's like, I my my husband works. In construction and he's been laid off and she said and we have a son and uh, you know he, he's on the autism spectrum right and she said uh, subhanallah she said that you know he, he he doesn't eat a lot of things and he's also lactose intolerant and she goes and I went to the store today and I went to like three or four different stores and all of them were out of the foods that he ate and the milk that he drinks and she's like and i've been sitting here and just crying because i don't know what i'm going to feed my son and he is and she was she was saying that like he's on the spectrum and so his autism you know part of part of his constitution is that he's very particular right as sometimes people on the spectrum are very particular about what he wants to eat and what he wants to drink and so he says you know like uh she she asks you know she says like does anyone have any You know, I know this is a shot in the dark. Does anyone have any milk? Does anyone have any milk? Like lactate, lactose-free milk that I could have. And subhanAllah, dude, we here at Roots have a fridge that was stocked because we were ready to keep going with programming up until the the regulations came down from the county. And so we actually have lactate. And I read that and I was like in the middle of something and I was really busy. And I was like, you know, what, subhanAllah, I'm going to go and I'm going to grab some lactate and I'm going to go deliver it to her. Right, And I ended up, Alhamdulillah, doing that and I was able to do that. But the point being is like sometimes those relationships, like it's going to inconvenience you to do that. It's going to require you to like give from your time and from your wealth and everything. But you have to do it. It's super meaningful. And when I met with her, I just got done recording the benefits of trials. You guys know the the series I'm doing. And so I was wearing my, as Sheikh Abdel Nasser calls it, the quarantine thobe. So I'm trying to stick in only a few outfits uh, when I go out especially because i don't want to increase exposure to different kinds of clothes so i have like this thobe that i wear and it's like it's like a moroccan thobe, you know but i'm i leave it at my door and it's like my quarantine thobe. so anyways so i was wearing the stove and like i was wearing my thobe and my kufi and i roll up to see her and i could tell that she was kind of like you know sort of like who are you and uh and subhanallah i was able to just be like hey you know this is from you know we're a local muslim community down the street um, and we actually had extra milk in our kitchen, and I saw your message, and I, w- I just wanted to give this to you. And she just, like, you know, started crying, was very emotional, and, like, think of that now. Like, the next time, you know, she sees something on on TV, someone saying this about Muslims or that, I mean, what what's she, she going to think? She's going to be like, man, this giant Muslim white man just, you know, wearing this dress just showed up at my door with milk, with a gallon of milk or two gallons of milk for my... For my son in a time of need, you know, in a time of need. And so uh, the point, I'm not trying to talk to you about myself because like I, you know, this is like nothing. I just basically delivered milk to somebody who was my neighbor. But what I'm trying to tell you is that it sometimes requires that sacrifice and that effort. It requires it. And go out of your way, you know, go out of your way to establish that. The Prophet Sallallahu Wasallam was going out of his way to make sure that these people who lived around him were people who uh, trusted him. And people who understood him and, and they valued having him as a neighbor in their community. So that was some of the first things that he would do. The next thing that was happening around uh, other kinds of expedition uh, were known as the Ghazwah. Uh, Ghazawat. The Prophet Wasallam he uh, sent out and he himself also went on different expeditions uh, to basically intercept, right, the, uh, the trade... Uh, routes of the Quraysh to different parts of Arabia. Why was he doing this? Why was the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi doing this? He was doing this because uh, there's two reasons. And this is a very important thing to understand because a lot of times when, especially, you know, Orientalists or uh, people who are critical of Islam are trying to retell Islamic history from their own lens, they're not being true to the text. And when you read the seerah of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi you actually study as to why the Prophet ﷺ did this kind of stuff. So one of the first things that, that it says is that there were two reasons as to why the Prophet ﷺ would send these interception expeditions. So the first one was to get to know uh, you know, the, the people around. The next one was, whenever the Quraysh from Mecca were doing their trade routes, he would go and intercept. Number one, to uh, recover the usurped and appropriated wealth of the muhajireen. So when the Muhajirun when they left Mecca and they arrived and made Hijra and Medina, their uh, property and their wealth, I mean, they didn't have time to pack and, and bring everything and they didn't sell their property when they were there. They uh, took everything with them uh, that they could, right? And I want you to imagine they took whatever they could with them, but then they left everything else. So they took everything that they could, but then they left everything else. So what can you take? If I told you right now, you know, hey, get up, grab whatever you can, you have to walk. You know, you have to leave and you're leaving on foot or you're leaving on on horse or on camel, right? What would you be able to take? Like nothing, maybe a bag, like a bag full of small things, like maybe very precious items that you would need. So they took everything that they could, but then they left everything that they couldn't take. And what happened was, the Quraysh appropriated all of that, they usurped all of that. So when they went, uh, subhanAllah, they, they would take all of their belongings and the Prophet Wasallam and the Muhajiri they said, you know, it's our right to intercept these trade caravans in order to do what? To reclaim what's ours. That if these people feel like they can just steal our property and they can just inhabit our homes and take our belongings, right, then we are due a certain value, right? And if they want to start, then we'll, if they want to start, then we'll have to step in and, and intercept their, their trade caravans and claim what's rightfully ours. Right, And so this was the first uh, point of these Ghazawat, these these different um, expeditions. The other point was that now that the Muslims had left Mecca, it wasn't all like rosy and easy. Uh, it was something that was on the mind of the Prophet Wasallam that these uh, Quraish were still going to try to uh, establish some sort of animosity and some sort of tension and they were gonna eventually try to build up and he aisla salam was forecasting and thinking but even then like you know he was he was anticipating that there was gonna be some kind of conflict right and so in order for the Muslims to sort of push off that conflict there had to be a little bit of a a front that they had to give to the Quraysh. So what they would do, it's actually very interesting subhanAllah they would go and they would ride up to the trade caravan. I want you to imagine like Abu Jahal, Abu Sufyan, all of these people are on these trade caravans and all of a sudden they would just see in the distance like 200 people roll up. And those 200 people, and sometimes they would come and they would say, give us your, give us your items. Those are ours. Like you, you took my stuff from my house and you're selling it. You took my stuff from here and you're selling it. You took this. Sometimes... <clears throat> it wasn't about claiming belonging. Sometimes they would just literally stand there and they would tell them like, where y'all going? Oh, okay, be on your way, right? Be on your way. Don't don't you dare come to Medina. Don't you dare step foot in Medina. Like they would basically come and be like, you know, they they would check them, right? So the two reasons why these Ghazawat happened, now, what's the Orientalist going to say? The Orientalist is going to say, look at how, look at what a a savage uh, community the Muslims were. You know, the Islamophobe is going to say, look at how... Bloodthirsty, the Prophet wa sallam, was. The Prophet wa sallam, wasn't even on the majority of these, and the majority of these weren't even violent in nature, right? It, 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 the Prophet ﷺ he handled these conflicts. His default was that there should be no violence, right? The default was that there should be no violence. Just claim things peacefully and be on your way, okay? So the the, the Orientalist or the Islamophobe perspective is going to try to introduce that. And as a Muslim, when you're reading that, you're like, wait, why would the Prophet do that? Right? Why would he do that? Well, because he was trying to create a sanctuary and a boundary, and it wasn't the violent, bloodthirsty imagery that the Orientalist is presenting. This was a strategic political move in order for them to understand that the Muslims had their city now, they had their home now. And there was no right for you to come in. First of all, you had no right to steal everybody's stuff. You had no right to torture us and kick us out. You had no right to make us leave our homes, right? But at the same time, now that we're here, number one, give us our stuff. And number two, leave us alone, right? Number one, give us our stuff. And number two, leave us alone. Now, on some of these uh, Ghazawat, what ended up happening was there were skirmishes. There were small skirmishes, not full out fights or battles, but small skirmishes. So there might be people like pushing one another. There might be people even shooting an arrow. There's a narration here that says that at one of them, uh, there was an arrow that was shot, but nobody was killed. Uh, you know, there was a couple arrows that were shot, but nobody was killed. Um, but there's one in particular that kind of uh, established a little... Um, it kind of pushed the tension a little bit too far. There's one here that's in particular. And the Prophet Muhammad Wasallam, he... He sent out, he dispatched a companion by the name of Abdullah bin Jahsh. Abdullah ibn Jahsh. And what he told him was, radiallahu anhu, what he told him was, he said, I want you to go on an expedition. And he gave him a, a message in a note. And he said, don't read this note until you get to um, a couple days out. Like basically until you travel for a couple days. I want you to head in this direction travel for a couple of days, and then I want you to open this note. So Abdullah bin Jah said, okay, uh, I'll do that. So when they had been traveling, uh, oh, and the Prophet finished by saying, if any of your people want to come back, then then let them come back. Like, after you read the note and you get the, you get the gist of what's going on, if at that point anybody wants to come back, then they can come back. Okay, let them come back. So Abdullah bin Jah says, you know, na Rasulullah, of course. So he gets about two days out and the Prophet ﷺ, his message, the sheet of instructions, it read, when you have read this, proceed until you reach what he called the Wad, the Valley of Nakhla. Nakhla, okay? Go into the Valley of Nakhla. Where was the Valley of Nakhla? The Valley of Nakhla was actually past Ta'if. Remember Ta'if? Ta'if was where the Prophet ﷺ initially had tried to, um, you know, make a a pitch to the people of Ta'if to accept the Muslims there, it's actually very close to Mecca, it's not far from Mecca at all. So imagine now, the journey from Mecca to Medina and Medina to Mecca is a long journey. So they had been traveling for a couple days and the Prophet ﷺ said, I need you to go all the way over there. Why? Why was he sending him? He said, so that you can try to get whatever information possible. I need you to get as close as you can to Mecca so that you can get whatever information possible about what the Quraysh are planning about what the Quraysh are planning. Why did the Prophet Sallallahu do this? Because like we said, there was there were whispers and there were conversations about how Quraysh were planning and trying to basically gather and and, and, and align the people around Medina and even within Medina, some of the tribes who were not Muslim they were trying to align people around Medina and even within Medina to uh, ally against them and to try to go against uh, the Muslims and the Prophet Wasallam. So this, these whispers of these plans was something that the Prophet Wasallam was keeping an eye on, right? He was keeping an eye on. And he was taking his means as far as trying to get more information about it. This is a very powerful lesson. The Prophet Wasallam, you know, one of the reasons why I love stories like this in particular is because the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi we know was a prophet of God and he was receiving revelation from Allah, right? And a person in that situation has so much resource to their advantage. They have so much. I mean, he could have asked Jibreel alayhi salam, he could have asked made dua to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala for Allah to give him an answer. He could have asked so many different, you know, he had so many different avenues to try to figure out what the Quraysh were planning. And those avenues could have been like in their nature, miraculous and divine. And that would have been believable because he's a prophet, right? But subhanAllah, he ends up sending Abdullah ibn Jahsh. And he's taking the the means that any of us would take, a human being would take. And he's also not just kind of banking on the fact that, well, I'm a prophet of Allah, so that means that everything I'm going to do, there's never going to be any struggle, there's never going to be any difficulty. And God will just take care of everything. Don't worry about it. Right? He's, he's, he's taking the means. He's taking the means to, number one, learn. And number two, protect. He's not just saying, oh, well, you know what? We're doing what's right. Let's just rely solely upon Allah with no effort whatsoever. Right? Even though Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala could, that's not the methodology that Allah ta'ala wants us to follow. Right? Because it's not spiritually healthy for a person not to take the means. And we've talked about this before, whether it was and Maraj, whether it was Musa striking with the staff, there's always some sort of means by which Allah instructs or Allah Ta'ala guides His prophets to take even before the most miraculous of things. There are means, right? There are means before Allah Ta'ala, even before Allah gives us miracles. Even though the miracle is a miracle, it doesn't need means, right? Allah Ta'ala is granting us a miracle, but... He still, Allah Ta'ala instructs us and gives us these means. Exactly. So, you know, like to tie your camel, but also trust in Allah. So this story, at this point, when he tells Abdullah bin Jahsh, like, I need you to go there, you know, and get me information. He could have sent Jibreel or the Mala'ika, who could have, you know, done it, uh, you know, invisibly, not being known. So many different options, but he's doing it in a way that is human, Right? And so Abdullah bin Jahsh... Now, what does that teach us? It teaches us that if the Prophet has to do this, then we definitely have to do this, right? We have to take the means in our life. We cannot expect divine intervention without applying some sort of effort, right? We have to take from the asbab. We have to actually try from the asbab. And those asbab, they include whatever we know to be the most practical, accurate information with regards to the dunya, and also seeking Allah's pleasure within our deen. So it's taking the medicine and making du'a. Right? But understanding that without the dua the medicine is without the dua the medicine is pointless. But also Allah Ta'ala created this earth that we do take medicine and we make dua. So there's two parts to this equation, right? Sometimes we 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 oppress ourselves by expecting the miracle without doing what Allah Ta'ala has built for us to do in order to catalyze the miracle to take place, right? Which is from the means. So, Abdullah bin Jash, when he reads this message, he reads it, right? And then he says, Okay, I'm going to do what the Prophet ﷺ instructed me. And he told everybody, This is the, this is the mission that the Prophet has sent us on. And he says, God's messenger has told us to go to Nakhla on a spying mission to learn uh, some news about the Quraysh. And he has told me that I cannot force any one of you to come with me that I cannot force any one of you to come with me, right? And so, if any one of you wants to join me, right? And wants to be, you know, he says to seek martyrdom for the sake of Allah, that's what he says. Then he goes, you're welcome to join me. He goes, but if you if you don't want to be there, then that's not what you signed up for, okay, then you can leave. Like if this isn't what you signed up for, then you can go back. No problem, no blame on you. The Prophet wasallam he allowed for that. He goes, as for myself... I'm going to go where the Prophet sallallahu told me to go. What do you think everybody did, right? Everybody said, yeah, I'm with you. You know, the Sahaba, I'll never forget one of the most powerful uh, lectures I've ever heard. One of the most powerful lessons I've ever heard was actually given by... Uh, a lot of people have said this, this idea in their lectures, but I'm remembering this specific moment Mufti Kamani gave a khutbah, and I was listening to it, and he said this line that I loved. And I thought to myself, man, so powerful... He said the Sahaba were great for many reasons, but if you look at some of the core reasons why they were so phenomenal, right? They were humans, but they were phenomenal human beings, is because they were always willing to do more than what was expected of them. They were always willing to do a little bit more or a lot more even than what was expected of them. That there was like, you know, the threshold of Islam. The Prophet here is saying, you're allowed to come back, you don't have to go right but abdullah bin jahsh and he tells them you're allowed to go but I'm going to go and every one of them go with him it's just the way that they were and we're going to see that story again right as they prepare for Badr, we're going to see that same story again right they always are willing to do a little bit more and subhanallah you see that the sahaba they had the strongest of faith they had miracles happening to them before their eyes allah ta'ala you know would would give them you know angels would literally come down from the heavens and join them and, 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 and defend them and, and fight alongside them. I mean, miracle after miracle after miracle. And one of the things that differentiates that generation from even us, right? That generation from us is maybe we are kind of always seeking sort of like the bare minimum of what we have to do. Right? It's kind of a human nature thing, like, you know, sort of seeking comfort at all times. What do I have, what's the bare minimum that I have to do in order for me to... It's very rare, subhanAllah, that you'll find people that are willing to do more than what's required in order to achieve a certain result. You know, what's the bare minimum? And then you look at the Sahaba and they're like, what's, what can I do? What am I allowed to do? Right? What would the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wa want me to do? So, be, you know, spirituality is found in between what you can do And what you should do. That's where like Iman, it just accelerates. You know, ask yourself this. Like when it's time to pray, we're going to pray Maghrib here shortly in Dallas. In five minutes the Adhan comes in. Like, you don't have to pray the Sunnah. You don't have to. But how do you feel when you do it? You know, how do you feel when you pray Sunnah before your Salah? You don't have to necessarily give Sadaqah, right? Besides your Zakat. But how do you feel when you do it? You don't have to fast before Ramadan. Ramadan you have to fast if you're able. But how do you feel when you do it? When you get a fast in, when you get a few fast in the month of Sha'ban, right, which is the month that we're in now where the Prophet ﷺ, he didn't fast any other month more besides Ramadan than in the month of Sha'ban in preparation for Ramadan and all the virtues that are in this month. So the reason why the Sahaba were able to transcend, I mean like they were humans like you and I, But they were able to do such incredible things and respond in such incredible ways to such difficult times because they were people that they had invested spiritually in themselves by always doing more than what was asked. So when the time came for them to be tested, they were able to handle it. But if I'm always hanging at the bare minimum, if I'm always hanging at the bare minimum, always, then when the waves come crashing upon me, I won't be able to handle it. Because I hadn't invested more than what was necessary. Think about it. If I'm living, right? If I'm living in my life and everything that I'm earning, all the dollars and cents that I'm earning, all the money that I get, I'm spending it. And I'm not talking about those who have no choice. May Allah Ta'ala, especially in this in this situation, in this economy, May Allah Ta'ala put barakah on everybody's wealth. May Allah Ta'ala put barakah on everybody's wealth and make everyone's wealth to stretch and give them what they need. But I'm talking about those people who have expendable income, more money than they need to live, but we spend it, we buy things, we buy what we don't need, we, you know, then what happens when, when a crisis occurs or what happens when, a, an, uh, you know, a, um, an unplanned emergency happens, what happens to us if, if we are literally at zero every month, no saving, right, then we end up, we end up in, in, in such a tragic situation, but then, subhanallah, if a person's able to to take from, and keep and invest and keep putting into an account more and more extra, more than what they require, but then when things happen, yeah, it's, it's still it's still it's tough when you're being tested, but you're prepared, you can handle it, you're better prepared than the person who has nothing. So think of your spirituality in that way. You know, when when I'm praying, and I ref, and I and I move on when I don't pray my sunnah and I don't sit and make dhikr after my salah, and I don't sit and make some du'a after my salah, I'm, I'm passing up on depositing something into my savings, my spiritual savings account. I'm passing up on that. If I'm just praying the bare minimum that I need to get by, you know, if I'm just doing the bare minimum of my faith, then when I'm tested, which is going to happen, because Allah Ta'ala tells us He's going to test us, when I'm tested, I won't have the ability to respond in the way that I want, and then I get frustrated myself. Why am I impatient? Why do I get angry? Right? Why am I not able to handle this with grace and with 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 trust? Where's my tawakkul? Where's my where's my trust in Allah? You know, trust in Allah is built in those moments where we invest spiritually, right? So look at their response. Look at Abdullah bin Jah's response. Ya yeah, Rasulullah, like we're you know, if you guys want to go back, you can go back. I'm following the Prophet. I'm doing what he tells me to do. They're all like, yeah, we're in. <laughs> you know? We're in. We're with you. So they they all had uh, committed to going, and they were going to uh, the the area that the Prophet had told them, but now they're in a very interesting conundrum. What's their conundrum? Their conundrum is that they're in. The last days of Rajab. The last days of Rajab. Uh, Rajab is one of the Islamic months and it's one of the months in which uh, fighting uh, was forbidden. It's one of the months in which fighting uh, was strictly forbidden, meaning that it was a sacred month. So there are some months, some times in which the, uh, you know, fighting was forbidden. Not only, by the way, I mean, Muslims obviously, yes, but not only, but there was also even considered sacred months even pre-Revelation, according to the Arabs, based off of obviously previous revelations, but it had been passed on. Rajab was one of them. So they're in this moment now that's very interesting where they're, they're, they're in Rajab, they're in the end of Rajab, but they know that they're going to meet a, uh, an adversarial uh, confrontational situation. So they don't know what to do and they're having this moment of sort of debate and questioning and they're trying to figure out, you know, what do we do? Do we, do we attack? Do we not attack? Do we commit to, to being, uh, you know, ultra-pacifist and we defend ourselves only with, you know, uh, trying to flee? Or what do we do? So they end up, when they end up reaching um, nearby Nakhla, they actually see a small group of people near Quraysh uh near uh near Mecca I'm sorry from the Quraysh they see a small group of people that had settled and were spending some time there so when they when they when they go by these people they're in the middle of having this debate and they see these people and then they say you know what i think we're here we're here for a reason these people they would kill us if they had the chance so now we have to you know we have to basically de- uh defend ourselves in that way preemptively and so we have to attack so they began to attack these people even though it would technically violate the sacred injunction of the sacred month. They attacked, one of them got away, there was four men that they attacked, one of them got away, uh, one of them was killed, and two of them were captured. All right? Two of them were captured. So what they did was, the, uh, the Muslims were able to take the caravan, their belongings, and also the two that were captured, and they went back to the Prophet Wasallam in Medina. So they took the situation they went back. Because now they have people from Quraysh, so now they can obviously interrogate them and tell them, what are you guys planning? When they arrived, the Prophet Wasallam he saw this situation, and he said to them, I did not ask you to fight. He said, I did not ask you to fight. Okay, like I, I sent you there, strictly on a mission, for you know basically what they call you know reconnaissance I sent you there strictly on a mission to discover things not to fight so these people the Muslims Abdullah bin Jash and the other companions عنهم, they felt very upset with themselves you know they felt like they made a huge mistake like how could we have disappointed the Prophet like this and they didn't know what they had done what did the Quraysh do when the Quraysh heard about this they ended up going on a crazy propaganda campaign against the Muslims and they started to launch all these horrific slogans about the Muslims all throughout Arabia. I mean they were saying stuff like, Look at these barbarians, look at these savages. You know, they they fought in the sacred months. They fought in the sacred months like, wow, you know, they used to tell everybody that all they wanted to do was worship God and that's it and just have a safe place to live. Now look what happens. They get their safe place. So they basically launched all of these Horrible, horrible attacks, and this became a very difficult situation for all the Muslims to deal with. Because remember, the Prophet Solomon is trying to build goodwill, right in in the in the in the um, in the Gulf. He's trying to build goodwill, and so now these people that he just you know sent out expeditions to and met with, and they're all building this you know budding trust of the Muslims and the Prophet Solomon. Now they're hearing Quraysh, who are sort of like these incumbent you know, establishment, <laughs> to use a Amu uh, uh, Burni, allah hadi to use a word from Amu Burni, uh, these establishment Arabs are using these terms to describe these Muslims. So now, there's like a lot of conflict happening because these people are like, we don't know if we can trust them or not. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala reveals in Surah Al-Baqarah, at the, you know, this is the, in the tafsir of this verse, you find this whole story. And Allah wa ta'ala reveals this verse. And he said that, they ask you about fighting in the sacred months. Or the sacred month. They ask you about fighting in the sacred month. So this is Allah Ta'ala now giving a, uh, a ruling. They ask you about fighting in the sacred month. Say, fighting in it is a, is, a, uh, is a horrible thing, is a grave offense. It's a horrible thing. But, Allah Ta'ala says, but turning people away from the path of God and to disbelieve in Him, and to take the sacred mosque and to expel people from it, he says, all of this is much worse than fighting in a sacred month. It's very interesting, subhanAllah. Like Allah Ta'ala is, is, obviously we believe that whatever is halal and whatever is haram, it's not up to us, it's up to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. So the sacred, the sacred month in, in general was established by God, right? So Allah is allowed to make something a sacred month, and also he's allowed to take that away or he's allowed to have exceptions, right? Obviously he's God. But look at what Allah Ta'ala is saying, it's so powerful. He's saying, fighting in the sacred month is a horrible thing. But, taking away people's humanity and pushing them away from God to begin with and expelling them from the the, the sacred masjid, right, the Kaaba. how can you get on a pedestal and start yelling about this sacred month, when look at what you've done. Right, look at what you've done. This is an incredible, incredible message from the Qur'an, that you guys are are, are losing the forest for the trees. Like you're getting up and you're starting to tell all of Arabia how you've been wronged. You're the king oppressors. You're the ones that have oppressed everybody. You actually made it get to this point by doing what you've done. Right? Right? So and this is why subhanAllah, uh, uh, Imam Ghazali and some others, when they talk about oppression in some of their books, uh, Imam Mawlud and and, uh, Ibn Qayyim even, when they talk about like injustice and oppression, uh, they actually warn, one of the first things that they'll talk about when it comes to oppression is that you don't become an oppressor as a result of your oppression. That you don't become an oppressor as a result of your oppression. Right? And they actually will warn about that and they'll say, like the first thing that you should do whenever you feel like there's a situation that's unfolding is you should make sure to yourself that you're not oppressing anybody. And this is what Allah Ta'ala is is reminding these people of. He's saying, You look at what you've done to these people. You know, they attacked you in the sacred month because of what you've done to them. Okay. Indeed, Allah Ta'ala says, religious persecution is worse than killing. Right? It's worse than killing. Then Allah Ta'ala, He tells them that they will not cease to fight against you until they force you to renounce your faith. He's talking now to the believers. He's saying that these people, these people will not stop fighting you until you give up your faith, until you give it up completely, if they can. But the person who renounces their faith and they end up leaving their faith and they die in that state, their words will come to nothing in this world and in the world to come. It is such people who are destined for the fire and they will be there forever, for eternity. So this is the verse in the Qur'an that was sent when the Prophet had received this verse. Then he now accepted the two people uh, in custody that were taken, that were captured in this raid. And he accepted them and he accepted the caravan. Uh, The Quraysh sent for the release of the two prisoners. So the Quraysh said, give us our two people back. And the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam told them that nothing could be done until you give us, uh, until we have the return of our, our two companions, right, that you have captured, uh, because they were delayed for, for, you know, they got delayed because they lost their camel and they were chasing their camel. And the Prophet Sallallahu told them, if you kill our two men, then we will end up killing your two men, right? So two for two. If you want to trade, we'll trade. So the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam, he accepted the ransom for the two prisoners, uh one of them though, you know, one of them, subhanAllah, had actually accepted Islam before he was given as ransom back. One of them had accepted Islam before he was given back. The other person went back to Mecca uh, where he later uh, passed away and he later died. So this, uh, but this moment, this moment, and we'll end here inshallah, this moment was kind of the beginning of something brewing in the Arabian Peninsula, that would lead eventually to one of the, you know, the, the one of the, the largest moments uh, and the first battle, really, of of Islam. The Battle of Badr, one of the largest moments, uh, because of what it taught the Muslims and what the believers had to do up until that point. But it was a this moment was definitely a turning point for the believers. It they went from being a community that was, uh, they were taught to respond with, with pacifism and peace, and they were told now that you are able to defend yourselves, right? That you are able to defend yourselves. There, Allah Ta'ala sent another ayah down in the Qur'an where he mentioned that uh, fighting was prohibited for you, uh, but now it is allowed for you against those who uh, oppress you, right? And so the Muslims now were given this. Abu Bakr al-Siddiq, he said that, when this verse came down, when the verse about allowing fighting came down, he said that I knew that something was going to come. Like I knew that something was going to happen. I had a feeling that something was going to happen. So we'll stop here for today, inshallah. Next week we'll go up to what led up to directly uh, the Battle of Badr, which was actually, it wasn't anticipated to be a battle by the Prophet Wasallam. It wasn't something that he thought was going to be a battle, um, but it ended up escalating very quickly and ended up becoming something that was very... Uh, very difficult uh, in the process of, but nonetheless, it was a miraculous moment in of itself. So we'll tell that story next week. We ask Allah Ta'ala to accept from us, and we ask Allah Ta'ala to bless us. And um, I, I really mean this when I say this. I sincerely hope and pray that everybody, inshallah, is keeping their spirits up and doing okay. Uh, I know it's not normal. I know that it's not uh, always okay. I know that there's a lot of stress and anxiety and frustration. Um And there's a lot of confusion and everybody's going through, uh, sort of like big question marks, but this is, you know, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to take the focus off the fact that people are being hurt and passing away and people are struggling. That's, that's a reality. And we can't, we can't just say, oh yeah, this is a nice time for me to learn how to bake banana bread and how to clean my, I'm going to clean my closet, my garage and stuff like that. Um, But I will say this, you know, subhanAllah, this is one of those moments where we, Allah Ta'ala is forcing us to look at the world. Allah Ta'ala is forcing us to look at the world around us and He's forcing us and He's really not giving us a choice that we can't be distracted by anything. We have to be so attuned to what's happening around us and maybe that will change us, right? Maybe that realization will change us. And how we respond to these moments and how we respond to this situation it's, um, it's something for sure that will stick with us. So we ask Allah Ta'ala to give us success uh, in this situation and to make good decisions and to um, protect us and our families from, from all of the, the health challenges that are arising from the situation. Make sure that you guys are reading your athqar in your morning and, and your evening. You can play them on YouTube. Um, that Allah Ta'ala will protect you as a result of that. The athqar of sabah and the athqar of Masat. And um, anyways, we ask Allah Ta'ala to protect us and I hope everybody is doing okay. Inshaallah, I love you all for the sake of Allah. I cannot wait to have you back here. Uh, for those of you who normally come, I cannot wait to have everybody back here, inshallah, and have our community back and pick up right where we left off with the great coffee and the great company. We ask Allah to accept. Barakallahu <laughs> feekum everybody. Take care. As-salamu alaykum wa rahmatullahi wa